0: Now join me as we read from the Word of God, Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7. You can stand with me for the reading of Scripture. Isaiah 9 beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of the living God. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy, they rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, Even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. All of God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer now. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the words of this passage, this prophecy uh, concerning the birth of our Lord. We do pray that you would... Uh, Bring this word in a living way uh, to our hearts, that the Spirit of God would minister this word to our hearts, uh, that we would see its importance for us, we would see its application for us as we uh, consider what you have to say about the birth of your Son. So please, Holy Spirit, illuminate this word, we pray in the name of Christ, Amen. amen. Well, brothers and sisters, today is the Lord's Day which happens to also be Christmas Day in the sequence of the calendar. It's a day of remembrance and a day of celebration as we think about the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to his second advent, but we are thinking here about his first advent and what it meant for the world. How Jesus' coming changed the world and continues to change the world and to change us. My purpose in giving you this message from Isaiah 9 today is very simple. I will will summarize the point of this sermon for you. And the, the point is, I want to explain to you why the incarnation of Jesus Christ should make you very, very happy. That's my purpose. I want you to leave here joyful as you think about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at the Christmas hymns, you open up the hymnal and you start going through the Advent hymns and the birth of our Lord hymns, you'll see lots of exclamation points. Have you noticed that before? Lots of exclamation points. And that's quite fitting because the birth of Christ is such an occasion for joy. And and you look at different uh, titles and lines of these hymns, you have titles like, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Good Christian men rejoice. All my heart this night rejoices. Christians awake, salute the happy morn. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. You see a theme here, right? In all of these hymns and these lines, we are to be joyful as we think about the birth of Christ. And so that is my hope, is that our rejoicing today would be increased. Do remember that the word gospel means glad tidings, joyous good news for us. I was looking at the definition that the uh, great biblical translator, William Tyndale, gave for the word gospel. He was trying to summarize, what does the word gospel mean? Listen to William Tyndale's definition. The word gospel signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings, that make a man's heart glad and make him sing, dance, and leap for joy. That was William Tyndale's definition of the gospel. I like that definition. That should be the effect of our time as we are in Isaiah 9 this morning. Now, children, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, Jesus Christ came into the world to bring you great joy. That was one of his purposes in coming. He's come to save you. And he's come to give you a joyful life. And so we we see that the prophecy of Isaiah 9 is a very good place for us to increase our joy. Because it describes in detail uh, what the coming of the Son of God in human flesh is all about. What he came to do and, and what he is like. And we have the benefit of looking at this prophecy in retrospect of its fulfillment. We 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 are not living in the time of Isaiah's original hearers, about 700 years before the birth of Christ. We live 2,000 years after the birth of Christ. We can look back at this prophecy, and we can see all that Jesus has done up until this point. We have the benefit of that hindsight. That's a blessing, to be able to look at these prophecies and see the fulfillment, the faithfulness of God. Now, there's a sense in which this prophecy is still coming to pass. And why is that? Well, verse 7, it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. So that's still happening, isn't it? Right now, Jesus is reigning over all things and his government is increasing, his peace is increasing. So let's look at this prophecy together and consider all the reasons for which we have to rejoice today. And I want to sketch for you the backdrop of this prophecy. I want to make it more real for us what the original hearers of Isaiah might have thought as they heard this remarkable prophecy. I don't think that our familiarity with some of these Old Testament events and what they were like is very good in my experience. And I want us to get better at our familiarity to these events. And so let me sketch for you what was taking place, because there's ta- there's this talk at the beginning of the passage about gloom and darkness, and, and we're wondering, well, what, what is that about? What was actually taking place that brought this gloom and darkness about? So it's important that we know that. If you look at the chapters Isaiah 7 through 9, you will find some significant historical events being described around the year 735 B.C., King Ahaz was reigning over the southern kingdom of Judah. And the people of Judah, there in Jerusalem and the surrounding parts of Judah, they were facing a very fearful situation. The the world around them was changing. These geopolitical circumstances were shaping up to make it a very fearful time. And at the opening verses of Isaiah 7... You'll read about how this king, King Rezin, the king of Assyria, was forming a military coalition with Pekah, who was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. They were going to band together. And these two kings, they were going to come against Judah. And so you have this little, little country here of Judah. Now it's surrounded by all these enemies, and even the northern kingdom is perhaps going to ally against them. And that was a fearful time for God's people as they were facing this impending uh, judgment, uh, this impending providence that could be very difficult. And in Isaiah 9, the prophet Isaiah was sent to Ahaz to give him Uh, some encouragement that this coalition would not prevail, that Assyria and the northern kingdom, they were not going to prevail against the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was right then, in those circumstances, that the prophecy of Isaiah 7, verse 14 was given. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now, from this, we learn something that's important about how we read the Old Testament prophets, and that is that the prophets, they would speak to the present situation of God's people. They did deal with the real issues that people were facing, but as they did that, they would often forecast way into the future events far, far away that were of such greater encouragement than anything in the present yes, they would speak about God's restoring promises and God's protection for the people right then and there, but they would also say that there is a Messiah coming. Your hope needs to be put ultimately in the Messiah who is to come. And within just a few years' time to this threatening of the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel would actually be invaded by Assyria. So this coalition didn't go very far, and instead the northern kingdom invades the Or, I'm sorry, Assyria invades the northern kingdom. And this resulted in an exile of the people that are up in the north. And remember that this is where Galilee is. This is where Nazareth is, where Jesus would eventually live. This northern region was brought into exile by the Assyrians. This is known as the first first exile, which 200 years later we know... That Babylon would come and take the southern kingdom as well, but there was much mercy, much patience that God gave to the southern kingdom. Now listen to this verse from Second Kings fifteen, verse twenty-nine. This actually describes how the king of Assyria came to the northern kingdom, and listen for the, the nations or the regions that are mentioned in this verse. Second Kings fifteen twenty nine. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took Ejon, Abel Beth Ma'akah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. And so it's likely that Isaiah is giving this prophecy in Isaiah 9, looking at this event as it was taking place. As the Assyria came and brought into exile God's people in the north, and this was the gloom, this was the distress, this was the darkness that was taking place that is mentioned in the prophecy. So let's read again Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, and let's consider that backdrop as we read. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, And afterward, more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And so it's this northern kingdom, Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, this region was under the severe disciplining hand of God. They had been brought into exile because of their idolatry and their rebellion against the Lord. And the, the prophet speaks about how the Lord had lightly esteemed them. He, he had allowed this to take place according to his sovereign purposes. And then it says that the Lord had more heavily oppressed them, which probably refers to the exile that took place when Assyria invaded. And this had brought terrible suffering and destruction upon the land. And one of the things that happened when the Assyrians invaded was that this whole land of the northern region became intermixed with the Gentiles. Many of the Jew, the, the people of the northern kingdom, the Israelites, they were taken to Assyria. And then Assyria returned the favor then by bringing Assyrians down into this area they had conquered and it intermixed all the people together That's where we eventually get the Samaritans from, is that intermixing of the Assyrians and the Israelites there. And so this region became actually filled with Gentiles, filled with non-Israelites or non-Jews. And it is this place that is under such gloom and darkness The northern kingdom had been plunged into darkness. They had been plunged into gloom because of the exile. They had been cut off from the faithful worship of God. They had had been taken out of the land of promise. They were under the severe disciplining hand of the Lord. And, of course, the nations, if we were just to speak of the nations, those nations had long been in darkness The northern kingdom had been privileged to have the worship of God for a time before the separation took place. They they were privileged to have the word of God, the promises of God. But the Gentile nations, they had not had that. Yes, you get a few examples of a Jonah going to Nineveh, but in general, the the world around Israel and Judah is plunged into the darkness of, of sin and death and the bondage to the evil one. And so th- what happens as we look from this prophecy to the fulfillment of it in Matthew chapter 4 is that the light one day dawned upon the northern kingdom. The light dawned upon the Gentiles in that region. And listen to what Matthew writes of the fulfillment, which we heard earlier, Matthew, 12, Matthew 4, 12 through 14. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and then he quotes Isaiah chapter 9. And so when our Lord Jesus, he came uh, to that region, of course, he had been born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth, and he began his ministry around that region of Galilee. He was bringing to fulfillment what Isaiah the prophet had spoken 700 years back about how the light would dawn in a very dark land. And this is what our Lord Jesus Christ has come to do, brothers and sisters. He has come to a world that is sunk in the darkness of sin and death. He has come to those that live in the shadow of death, and he has come to bring light to this dark world. And as long as people do not know Jesus Christ, as long as they do not receive him as Savior and Lord, they too dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death. They, they live lives that are meaningless or hopeless. And so many, they live in this kind of gloom and despair that Isaiah 9 is describing of the northern kingdom. And, and while it may not be always outwardly evident that people live in such gloom and despair, there is often a silent despair that is quite real in people's lives. They don't have much hope. They don't know what they're living for. They can't really define that. They don't have hope for the future because they know eventually death simply comes. Nobody has solved that problem, humanly speaking. And so this is a picture for us. Isaiah draws a picture using the example of the northern kingdom and the Gentiles in that region to show this is what the world is like until the Messiah comes and brings light kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, Jesus Christ brings light to hopeless humanity by giving us an eternal hope and setting us free from the bondage of sin and death. Now, before we move on in the actual words of the prophecy, I want to point out to you something about the grammar of these verses. Sometimes, Contemplating the grammar of a passage can be very edifying. And I believe that it is the case here. Look at verse 2, and you'll notice that it is rendered in our English versions. It doesn't say this. Here's what it doesn't say The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It says, upon them a light has shined. Why is it rendered that way? Well, it is rendering in Hebrew the perfect tense, which indicates a completed or a past action in terms of how we think about it in English. Now, how could the prophet do this? Why would he put it in this tense if it was 700 years out in the future? How could he say this has happened? Light has dawned upon those in darkness. Well, what this is sometimes called is the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect. What it means is that the perfect tense is used to vividly show God having fulfilled His word even before it is fulfilled. It's almost like God saying, It's as good as done. The Lord is saying, this is what I'm going to do, and vividly setting it forth for us that this has taken place. And this is how we need to think about God's promises, brothers and sisters, is that he is faithful to fulfill his word. If he has said he will do it, it is as good as done, even if it hasn't actually happened yet in space-time history, as it was when this prophecy was received, And this helps us, I think, as we, as we hear this prophecy, it would have helped, of course, I think, those in the northern kingdom to contemplate what God was going to do, and they would be thinking, we haven't seen this light yet, but God says, they have seen a great light, they will see a great light, and then God promises at the end of the passage, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, I will do this, that which I have promised. You'll notice as we keep going through some of the passage that that prophetic perfect continues to be evident in most of the verses. Verse, let's look at now at verse 3 and verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5, to summarize them for you, is a picture for us of the tremendous victory of the Messiah. These are word pictures, they are illustrations of how great the victory of the Son of God is. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. There's a lot of different pictures here, and I'll explain them to you, but if I could give you three words that summarize what these verses are telling us just to explain the victory of the sun, the three words I would use are joy, freedom, and victory. Joy, freedom, and victory. This is the redemption of Christ for us in illustration, illustrated form, very true form. And, and what it describes, is it gives us these two pictures. We have on one hand the bountiful harvest, that the people are now rejoicing in this great harvest that has taken place. So that's one picture. And then the other picture is like the, the enemy army being utterly decimated. And that enemy army has been so destroyed that we have all of the spoil to take from the victory of war. And, and the idea here is that the yoke of oppression, that the bondage that the people were in, that that yoke is broken for good in the victory of Christ. And certainly this would have partially Uh, been true and applied to the exile of the northern kingdom they dealt with bondage living in a foreign land so it applies to that but we know that it's better than that it's greater than that this is describing the freedom that the son of god brings to those that he shines his light upon and verse 5 is an interesting image. It talks about these garments and this fire and this burning. And, and the idea is actually quite simple. It's like you take all the sandals and the garments of the opposing army and you just burn them up in the flames. They're gone. There's nothing left. That's how full and comprehensive the victory of this king, the Son of God, is. And so consider those three words, joy, freedom, Victory. This is what the Christian life ought to be characterized by as we mature in it, as we experience the reign of Christ in our lives. We experience more joy. We experience freedom from the enslaving bondage of sin, and we experience an increasing victory over all of those things. Now, how how does this all come to pass? The, The prophecy builds up to this point. We're hearing about how the light is going to come and how there's going to be this victory Well, it comes with the coming of the Son in verse 6. Let's read verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this is what we remember today, brothers and sisters. We remember that unto us a son was given, this gift of the Son of God to a very broken, dying, dark world that has now come. And in this prophecy, we have summarized for us who he is. We get these titles, these Uh, different titles that are ascribed to our Lord, and we need to understand these titles if we would know who our Lord is. And as our uh, brother Bill was sharing as he was leading in the the singing, we, we need to ponder these things in our heart, just as Mary did. We need to meditate upon them, take them with us. And so knowing who Jesus is and believing in him is the pathway to all that this prophecy describes. Do you want joy in your life? Do you want freedom? Do you want victory? Victory through Christ. You find this in knowing Him and in believing in His name. If you long for freedom from hopelessness and despair and if you're weary of all the empty promises of this world, weary of attempting to satisfy all your desires and yet still finding yourself empty, Joy is so vapid and fleeting from you. Well, the the, the source of joy is found here in the Son of God. So let's look at these titles uh, together. And you'll notice that in different translations, uh, some, depending on where the commas are placed, you either have five titles or four titles. Uh, The New King James and the King James provides five titles. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace and then others perhaps like the ESV will just give you four titles wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace there's different ways in which you might uh, render it uh, i will suggest to you that i believe that reading it as four titles is probably best grammatically and it also provides a symmetry to the text that is very helpful in understanding that you have you have two t- uh, two descriptions in each title and it's possible to see each aspect of the t- uh, titles as having both a divine side and a kingly side, a divine side and a kingly side, and I'll try to show you how I think that that shows up in these four titles, because part of this whole, this passage is to talk to us about a coming king. That's something that uh, the children of Israel, children of Judah would have been anticipating was the king who would reign over them, who would rescue them from their enemies. And so they're thinking in terms of a king. But I don't think that the people of Israel were, were quite yet thinking in terms of king who is God. That was, that was much further, uh, further out from their thinking. But I think what the prophecy does is bring together the kingly element and then the divine element. So let's look at these four titles. And children, as we go through each of the titles... I gave in a simple fill-in-the-blank. You may already be familiar with these if you've memorized this passage, but you can fill in those titles as I name them. First, the Son of God is called Wonderful Counselor. I think in this title that the phrase counselor is the kingly side of the title. And the reason I say that is because that was one of the jobs that kings would do. They were to dispense wisdom to God's people, they would give counsel. They were, uh, they had this important ruling function, and they would guide God's people in truth and in righteousness. If they were good kings, and our Lord Jesus does this, He is the great counselor. He is the very best counselor. He is the king and the prophet of God, and everything that comes from His mouth is truth and righteousness. And he is also wonderful. I think this is a divine or divinity-like title because it's actually not an adjective in the text. It's actually a noun. Wonder. He is a wonder. And this word in the Old Testament was frequently used to describe the miraculous manifestations of God's power in the earth. You'll find this being referenced. Whenever you see miracles in the Old Testament, these were the wonders of God. And so to say that he's a counselor, yes, he's a king, he he speaks truth, he guides God's people, but he is wonderful. He is something to be wondered at. And I would ask you, are you in awe of Jesus Christ? As you read the Gospels, are you astounded by the perfections of Jesus Christ. This this man, this God-man, who is able to still the storm with a single word, who can heal people hundreds of miles away with a word, and yet who has such compassion and mercy as to touch the one who is sick. Are you amazed by the wisdom of Christ's words? Are you in awe of His almighty power, His reign over all things, Is Jesus amazing to you? He is wonderful. Counselor. This is one of his titles. The next title we see is Mighty God. And again, if we're looking for a kingly and a divine title, if if my analysis of these titles is correct in this division, you certainly can see that mighty was a term that was often applied to kings of old. There were many mighty kings, but none of them was God. This would have been difficult for the people of Israel, I think, to grasp, to grasp that a son is born and he's mighty God. How does this work? Of course, the incarnation, the mystery of the two natures and the one person of Christ is a mystery that for, will for forever, perhaps, boggle our mind. I guess we'll be contemplating it into eternity still. The child to be born in Bethlehem, as Micah prophesied, is almighty God, and that is what jesus brings together in his perfect person he is god and he is man he is the almighty one over all things colossians 1 even goes tells us and says that all things consist in him all things exist in jesus christ do you realize the implications of that claim What it actually means is that theoretically, if Jesus chose not to uphold the universe for a moment, it would fall apart. This is the almighty nature of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if you come to hear this word today, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to understand what the Bible says about him. The Bible straightforwardly says that Jesus Christ is almighty God, And the entire universe is dependent upon him for its continued existence. That means that your next breath is dependent upon him. Now, will you worship this one? Will you bow the knee to this one? Will you acknowledge him to be who he is as Almighty God? We continue with the third title Everlasting Father. Now, if, again, if my analysis of the titles is correct, and you can, you can debate if, if I get this right, but if there's a kingly side and a divine side, the kingly might be connected to the title Father. Now, sometimes people have been confused by this because we're, we speak about the distinctions within the Trinity, that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we know that this is the birth of the Son. So we're thinking, well, how can he have the title Everlasting Father? I don't believe that this title is intending to describe Trinitarian distinctions for us. Rather, I believe the title Father is used to describe his care for his people as a father. Uh, The kings of Israel were sometimes described as fathers. They were to be fathers to the people of God. They were to care as a a good father does. A good father protects his family. and, And the fathers, the kings, were to protect the people of God. And in that sense, Jesus is Father, but it says here he is everlasting. He is the eternally existent one. This, again, boggled the mind of the hearers and boggles our minds. How can one eternally existent be born? It's an amazing thing to consider. This language of Father you'll see in examples like Psalm 103, 13 through 14, and it says of the Lord, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And so he is fatherly in this way, but he is also eternal. And Micah chapter 5 tells us this, it spoke about the prophecy here of where Jesus would be born, and this was of course the, the passage that Herod inquired of the Jewish scribes, he says, hey, where's this king to be born? I have these, these wise men that showed up on my doorstep, and they're asking where the king is. And the scribes say, well, it's Bethlehem. Haven't you read Micah? And listen to Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting that in this little town of Bethlehem, one who was king, who was a, had an everlasting nature, would be born. What an incredible mystery to consider. We go to the final, final title, Prince of Peace. The title Prince was often given to human kings. They were described as princes. David was and Solomon was. Now, what about peace? Well, I would suggest that peace here is the divine side of the title because God is the source of ultimate peace. He's often described in the Bible as the God of peace. Now, that's a word I think that everyone loves. Does, does anybody not like the word peace? People so long for peace. They they seek after it. Uh, they seek after different kinds of peace, but... Perhaps most of all and most naturally, people seek peace for themselves. While many seek out personal peace for themselves, they do not realize that the source of lasting peace and lasting joy can never be found in themselves. As long as you try to find things in yourself, you're going to be very disappointed if you're looking for joy and peace. You're not going to find it in the things of this life which all perish, You will find peace and you will find joy in the Son who has been given to this world, Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who reigns in peace. He brings peace to his people. He brings peace to the world. You remember the words of the angelic hymn in Luke chapter 2? The the angels were speaking just about what Isaiah 9 had prophesied. Luke 2 verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That was the declaration. For the whole world, all nations, the angels were saying, I bring you good news of peace. The prince of peace has come. Now it's important to remember that on the night that this announcement took place, that the, the Western world, the Roman Empire, was living during a time that we call the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. And the spread of the Roman Empire had brought about a great degree of peace within the empire because, ironically, of course, it was a lot of war it took to get to that point. They had to conquer all these surrounding nations, bring them under the domination of the Roman Empire, but it did bring about certain benefits. There were many benefits. There was peaceful trade uh, between these uh, different nations that were now part of the empire, these different peoples. There was safer travel. You could go across a pretty good network of Roman roads with a good degree of safety, not perfect, but a lot better than it had been before the peace of Rome had come into place. There was a more consistent application of law and justice. And yes, we know there was a lot of problems with Roman law and justice, but there were a few good things that came with that. Uh, We might think of, of Paul, who was able to use his Roman citizenship to get out of a bind at one point. And many have seen that this period, this peace of Rome, was an important benefit for the spread of Christianity. In fact, I think in God's providence... This piece of Rome was used so that the apostles could spread the gospel all over that Mediterranean world with a great degree of additional safety, even though they had some persecution along the way, they were able to get around. And if the Mediterranean world was a constant state of warfare and pirates everywhere and bandits along the road, it would have been much more difficult. Now, as we think about the peace of Rome, I sketch all of that for you to remind us that Whatever that peace brought, it didn't really solve our human problem, did it? Whatever peace a Roman ruler could bring to the world, it was never an ultimate and final peace uh, for a few reasons. One reason is that the peace of Rome ended, so that's why you can't depend on that. But another reason is that no Roman Caesar could deal with the problem between you and God. No Roman emperor could deal with the internal turbulence of your soul that has been caused by sin and the suffering of this fallen, evil world. No Roman emperor could solve that. In fact, one Roman philosopher, Epictetus, writing in the first century, he very aptly said this concerning the peace of Rome. He said, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, He is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for for outward peace. He says the emperor can't help you with your grief, with your your passions, your desires, with your envy. He can't give you peace of heart, uh, which is so much more desired and so much more fundamental than just having an outward peace. But with the coming of Christ, that that changed, brothers and sisters, that the Prince of Peace comes to bring a true peace, a lasting peace, a peace that cannot be taken away from us. How does he do this? Well, our Lord brings peace between God and man first by making peace by the blood of his cross. The greatest of all conflicts, the, the reason that we should be the most concerned is that Apart from Christ, we are separated from a holy God. The the word of God says that our sins have made a separation between us and God. But Jesus came to bridge that gap, to bring us back together. He is the mediator who is both God and man, who came to reconcile God and men. Paul writes in Romans 5, speaking of this peace that Christ brings, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And if you are a member of this kingdom of Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 14 that this is a kingdom of righteousness Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the the kingdom in which the Spirit of God works in the hearts of his people, brings forth peace within them. And as we learn of this peace uh, that Jesus has uh, brought about through his cross, we begin to experience an internal peace, a contentment, a calm that comes because we know that our sins are forgiven, that we are reconciled with the Father and that we are his children. And then that peace flows out into other kinds of peace. Then, part of the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit is to reconcile mankind together as well. The church itself is a living evidence of that, of peace. And yes, we can think through many examples of conflict. We we do see our sins coming out and, and dividing things at times, but we also see the Holy Spirit ministering unity and peace in the body of Christ all over the world. This is the faith that brings together people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and makes them into one new man. And we know that all of the world's efforts at peacekeeping are very, very shoddy. What has the United Nations done in its peacekeeping efforts around the world? What has it accomplished? How well has the social justice movement done in bringing reconciliation? doesn't even seem like that's its purpose in some ways to bring reconciliation but people want peace they want reconciliation but all of these other means they don't work but when Jesus Christ saves a man or a woman he puts that person in possession of a lasting peace justified by faith at peace with God and from that peace flows peace of conscience and from that ministry of the holy spirit flows peace with others and that peace spreads All over the world. Now we come to the final verse. Verse 7 of describing this king. This God who reigns. This son who was given. And what will his kingdom be like? Of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. Upon the throne of David. And over his kingdom. To order it and establish it with judgment. And justice from that time forward. Even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so we've been considering why we should be joyful today. And one of the reasons your joy should be full is because the reign of Jesus Christ lasts forever. And it will keep increasing, this passage tells us. We see the fulfillment of this in the an announcement uh, of the angel Gabriel to Mary. He came to her and he said this to Mary in Luke chapter 1, 32 through 33. He will be great, the the angel said of Jesus, and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The birth of this little boy in Bethlehem to the humble and poor Mary was the fulfillment of what the Lord had promised in Isaiah 9. And it's really amazing to think that the one reign, the one king that reigns forever, he had his start in Bethlehem, in the manger. And our brother, Pastor Strasser, he spoke about the humility, the humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he began his reign. It starts that small, but it doesn't stay that small, does it? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that, that though the smallest of all seeds on the earth grows and becomes a tree greater than all other trees and the birds come and nest in its branches. That's what we're told about the kingdom of Christ. And consider the kingdom of our Lord compared to all the other kingdoms of this earth. We can review the, the stories of history. We can look at some very great empires of the past. Or so they seemed great. You think of the kingdom of Alexander the Great. Some hundred years, a few hundred years before our Lord came in his incarnation. Alexander did some amazing work of conquering. He really did conquer a lot of land really fast. It was a big kingdom. And he, yet he, he didn't get to keep this kingdom. Why? Because he died at age 32. Jesus died around the same age, but Jesus rose again from the dead and reigns over all things at the present. Alexander the Great, he's not reigning over anything. The empire of Genghis Khan, it stretched across almost all of Asia and much of Europe. He made his way into Europe, and it looked like he's going to conquer the whole world at this point. But within a generation or two, it shrunk in its influence until it eventually just didn't even exist any longer. The Roman Empire, we know, stretched across Europe, Africa, parts of the Middle East into Great Britain. But 400 years later, the empire fell. It crumbled into separate pieces. And as Daniel had prophesied, the kingdom that would never perish crushed all the others and set up that reign that would last forever. And so the reign of Christ continues to this day. Christ our Lord reigns supreme over every nation of this world, over the United States, over Colorado, over Elbert County. And we, the Church of Christ, are here to bear witness to this fact. We are the ambassadors of this king. We declare that he is king of kings and lord of lords. He he reigns over all things. He reigns over us. And so it was said in Revelation chapter 11, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so if we know that our Lord Jesus reigns supreme right now, this should give us joy, brothers and sisters, because we do not have to be alarmed by all the other things that are going on around us. We don't have to be alarmed by all the nations and their attempts to thwart the kingdom of christ we know that god laughs at them he holds them in derision and so we too should do the same and we know that if christ's kingdom is the only eternal kingdom and that we are members of this kingdom then what joy should be ours knowing that these things cannot be taken away from us our citizenship cannot be diminished it cannot be stolen from us it is ours for good And so we await the consummation and the final glory of his kingdom in his second advent. And we look forward even now, even before he comes, we look forward to the increase of his government over all the world. That is the promise of Isaiah 9. We're going to see the reign of Christ established over over all the parts of the world. And that's certainly what history bears out for us as well. Now let's look at the very, very final words of this prophecy, the end of verse 7. I want us to consider the promise of God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We've already said, of course, this is presented as a past action, a completed action here by our God. And this is the Lord promising to his people, promising it to an anxious, perhaps fearful hopeless, despairing people, that I'm going to do what I've promised to do. It's so important that we we grasp onto these promises, brothers and sisters, when we become fearful and anxious and gloomy and depressed about the current situation. We need phrases like, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this and apply it to whatever pr- promise you want. God has said that he is going to do this, and again, we have the benefit of retrospect to see that he has done it. So, brothers and sisters, what we remember on Christmas Day is that the, the Lord of hosts did perform it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts came through. He was faithful to his promises. The Son has been born, the Son has come, and the Son now reigns over all things. His reign has begun and it continues and it spreads itself across the globe. And for all those who receive him, who believe in his name, the word of God says that your yoke of oppression will be broken. If you trust in him, your gloom and your despair and your hopelessness can be replaced with joy and peace and hope. And for this reason today, we should be very, very happy. We should sing joy to the world with our whole heart, believing every word of it, as we look at this prophecy. And so, brothers and sisters, let us give thanks for what God has done for us, and let us rejoice. We will close in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, what love you have shown to this world to give this child to bring joy and peace to this fallen world. And we thank you that we who believe in Christ, we know him to be our Savior. We thank you for the joy that you have given us, and the promises of this great kingdom that are ours by faith. We pray today also that for those who do not believe in your Son, that you would give them the gift of saving faith. Grant them the joy, the freedom, and the victory that is described here. And we also pray for the increase of Jesus' government in the world. We pray for the increase of peace. We, We desire to see Jesus Christ acknowledged for who he really is all over the world. So we pray for the advance of the kingdom of Christ. And we thank you in the name of our Lord. Amen.